Welcome to episode 75 of the FarmExec podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, senior editor of FarmExec magazine and your podcast host. FarmExec magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Naraki, managing director of digital investigations and cyber defense at Nerdello and Company. Scott talks about the current cyber risks facing pharma and how companies in the industry at large can counter those threats. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Scott. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At TrueSterum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. TrueSterum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at TrueSterumNTWK.com. Hello, podcasters. Today, I'll be interviewing Scott Naraki, Managing Director of Digital Investigations and Cyber Defense at Nardello & Company. Scott is here to discuss cybersecurity in pharma, including topics from prevention to crisis management. Thanks for joining me today, Scott. Thank you, Elaine. I'm happy to be here. So you have a really interesting background that's prepared you in many ways for your recent move to cybersecurity at Nardello. Could you take us through some of that? Uh, certainly. I had a non-traditional path to becoming a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I recently retired in December. Prior to coming to the FBI, uh, I was a physical therapist and a department director in a hospital. And, and many people ask, how do you become a special agent coming from healthcare? And when I tell them, the FBI is a diverse organization, and we look at many skills from different backgrounds, that is helpful in the investigations that the FBI conducts. So certainly coming from healthcare uh, was helpful. Being in a leadership position uh, specifically uh, made me competitive uh, for the special agent position. I joined the FBI in 1999. Uh, one of the first assignments I had uh, was uh, a member of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And what the JTTF consists of uh, would be federal, state, and local law enforcement partners, all working together to prevent, deter, and detect terrorism. In 2001, I was assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force for the FBI Newark office, and the 9-11 attacks occurred. The office mobilized very quickly uh, to investigate the attackers. Uh, we also looked at Flight 93, too, as well, as that flight had taken off uh, from Newark, New Jersey. So one of my first assignments was investigating Flight 93. Thereafter, I was invited to work on the what we call the Pentbomb team out of FBI headquarters and represent the FBI Newark office uh, on that team. And it was a team of fantastic investigators. Thereafter, I was brought back to the Newark office and uh, investigated the Amerithrax attacks of 2001. These were the anthrax letters that were mailed from New Jersey. And, and that pretty much started my path into science and technology type threats. So as you know, anthrax is a biological agent, and I developed some expertise in that realm and worked WMD matters 
for quite some time. From there, uh, it took me to the dark web because on the dark web, you have the sale of illicit narcotics. Uh, we've seen toxins for sale. So working dark web investigations ultimately led us to several successful uh, investigations in, in the United States. From there, I transferred over to cyber, where I was assigned to one of the largest cyber intrusion task forces in the nation, uh, which was co-located with the forensic lab, and worked many uh, cyber intrusions during that time frame. These included major cyber attacks, investigating those, attributing root cause to those, those actors, and then ultimately attempting to take some of these chess pieces or these adversaries off the chessboard. So that was a very, very exciting time to be working on uh, such an elite task force. From there, last year, we had uh, started an initiative uh, in the FBI Newark office, working with the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security, and I assisted in the architecting and led an initiative called the Biotechnology Threat Focus Cell. And the lens that we applied to threats to the biotechnology sector include threats such as uh, national security, threats to the intellectual property, cyber threats, and insider threats to the sector. So we worked collaboratively with the private sector, and it was, a, it was a, a, again, a very rewarding mission. From there, one of my last assignments in the FBI was working on Operation Warp Speed, which was the protection of the intellectual property associated with COVID-19 vaccinations, therapeutics, and diagnostics. And then finally, I was uh, recruited by Nardello and Company to come over to be their operational lead in the digital investigations and cyber defense practice. And at Nardello and Company, uh, we have several practices. So it's not just cyber defense and digital investigations. We have due diligence, anti-corruption and fraud investigations. Uh, litigation support. Uh, so, so our practice focuses on the digital investigations and cyber defense side. It, it is a model that's very familiar to me. Coming from the FBI, we had the cyber special agent, the intelligence analyst, the computer scientist, and then the cyber federal prosecutor. And it's interesting that that's the model that I'm comfortable with. And, and I come to Nardello and we have a, a former cyber federal prosecutor. I'm the former cyber special agent. We have intelligence analysts and we have computer scientists. So it's a, it's a model that's uh, very familiar to me. Great. So what was it like working on Operation Warp Speed? So Warp Speed, I would say, was the pinnacle moment of my career. You have the pandemic starting, so this is uh, early of 2020, and uh, Operation War Speed being launched. So, uh, and, and hats off to the private sector researchers, to the, the healthcare workers that are, are, are on those front lines of the pandemic. So you have researchers uh, that are working in, in various capacities and various companies conducting research and development into a, a vaccine. Our process was a parallel process. We were working collaboratively with the interagency. When, when I mean interagency, it's, it's a whole of government approach in the United States where we're leveraging our resources to protect that intellectual property associated with the research and development, which the vaccine, the therapeutics, uh, and the diagnostics. Again, it was a very rewarding experience, you know, once in a lifetime. And to talk about the seriousness of the threats, there, recently there's a, there's a well-respected big pharma 
uh, CISO that had mentioned that they are under attack every single minute of every single day by nation state actors. And I thought that that kind of captures what the threat actually entails to the biotechnology uh, sector. And then, and then one other moment I wanted to share too as well. My wife uh, works as an epidemiologist and a uh, health officer uh, in New Jersey. So she's responsible for uh, initial the, the testing, setting up the testing sites, and then ultimately now the vaccination sites. And, and we just had this moment not too long ago where uh, she sent a, a picture of the vaccine being delivered to her site. And to see the nurse with the cooler uh, over the shoulder, and we just had this remote moment. It, it, it was kind of like an end-to-end where, you know, I was part of Warp Speed in the beginning, and then to see the, the, the fruits of those labors and protecting uh, that intellectual property, it was, it was just a, a moment of hope. Right. And it was just it, it was so rewarding. And it was just this remote moment that we had that that it just I'll, I'll remember that forever. That was really nice. So now that we're hopefully headed out of the pandemic, you know, what are some of the greatest cyber threats facing pharma in the near term? Certainly. We see a lot of interest in research and development. We see attacks on the supply chain. When you think about uh, some of the more recent attacks, I think that the solar winds attack was uh, is definitely fresh on people's minds right now. Uh, this was a very sophisticated attack. It was patient and it was it was very well done. And when you think about it, the customers that were conducting patching or updating their systems, they downloaded this malicious patch into their systems. And these were companies that were doing what they should be doing, right? You're looking for updates to your systems and you're conducting patching. And unfortunately, there was malicious uh, activity within that patch. So supply chains, I would say, would be a high threat for organizations, particularly in pharma. You have to look on both sides of the spectrum, to the right and to the left. Uh, You're looking at the companies that provide you the precursors for your pharmaceuticals. You have to look at the companies that are conducting your research and development. You can't assume that these companies have a mature cybersecurity architecture. You really need to do your due diligence on those companies um, and assess, is this someone or some company that we will trust our data to? And then also, would we trust their systems connecting to our systems? Another threat that we see uh, that has been evolving over the last couple of years would be ransomware. And you see different variants or strains of ransomware. So these these strains will get nicknames. Uh, So you'll hear something like maze ransomware, for example. Ransomware Essentially, when there is an initial access to your systems, this malware will look for files, servers, it'll look for your backups too as well, and then it will silently encrypt those files and servers. And then you have a ransomware note that will show up on your desktop, and your systems are locked. They are very specific on what ransom they're looking for. Very often, they've been in your systems long enough to know how much you can afford for a a ransom. So these types of incidents tend to be quite challenging. We've seen them up their game last year where these ransomware actors are exfiltrating data at the same time. And they're well aware of HIPAA laws and also 
privacy laws. So when they will exfiltrate that data, they will then threaten to publish that data. And that's where it, it, it pretty much takes the company and twists their arm a little bit more into paying a ransom. And it's unfortunate. Uh, we, we've seen multiple uh, exfiltrations of, of data and, and data going public. Uh, and, and these can be very challenging incidents. Another uh, tactic that we've seen is what we call a business email compromise. This is where an account for a trusted individual in an organization, particularly maybe somebody in purchasing, or maybe somebody that is the chief financial officer, someone that has the ability to uh, direct transactions. We've seen multiple incidents where an account gets taken over, transactions are ordered by the uh, cyber criminal, and we're seeing wire transfers. And very often these wire transfers end up going overseas. And then if you don't initiate what we call a, a financial kill chain, unfortunately the money is lost if, if, if this incident is not detected. Another thing we see is intellectual property theft. This especially is, uh, you know, if you have a smaller pharmaceutical company, perhaps a startup that has one treatment or one diagnostic or therapeutic that they're developing and the trade secret surrounding that intellectual property, if that is stolen, that could be a game over for that company. So protecting that intellectual property. And then another threat that, that we see uh, is the threat of the insider. And, and the insider threat could be either malicious or non-malicious. So the non-malicious insider is someone that will click on a link that will download a malicious document with malware uh, in the uh, document embedded that moves through the system and looks what, what we call lateral movement, looks to escalate their privileges and, and, and attempt to gain higher visibility on a network to ultimately exfiltrate data. And then you have the malicious insider. This is someone that is looking to steal that intellectual property. Maybe there's some, some type of grievance that would cause them to steal that intellectual property. Sometimes it's just a uh, mentality based off of this employee that believes that this research is theirs. Aside from any NDA or contract that they have, they feel that they own this property. So they would look to exfiltrate that data. So um, th those are the, the threats that I would see, you know, facing pharma right now. Uh, and I think those are in, in, important to prioritize. Thanks. That's a lot to think about. We've really seen pharma come together um, during this pandemic. How can that idea of collaboration help them in the way of cybersecurity? We, we saw that in the biotechnology threat focus cell, uh, where we see companies coming together to share information. And this, this traditionally is, is a competitive industry when you think about it. But what transcends each of these companies is that exterior threat and then that insider threat. So each of them faces the same threat spectrum. And very often we'll see attackers, they'll move from company to company. They might conduct vulnerability scanning on each of the networks of these companies and looking for a way in, for example. So collaboration is key I, and, and, and sharing cyber threat intelligence and indicators. Uh, it's so important. And, and what we're looking to establish is a, a proactive measure where they're sharing, mitigating, and neutralizing threats ahead of time before they occur. So that is so important. And what you hope to achieve with this, I think the, the end goal is you're looking to scan the horizon for new threats and identify new threats before they materialize. 
and then also form what we call a, a herd immunity. So you have a herd immunity amongst these companies when they're sharing information. So the CEOs out there, your, your CISOs and chief security officers, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're members of, of, of associations. And there's, there's a lot of associations out there. You have FBI InfraGuard, uh, which shares uh, technical information on, on attacks that we've seen in the form of technical advisories. You have the HISAC, too, an information sharing initiative of the greater healthcare community. Um, I've also seen the, the Pharmaceutical Security Institute, where companies share threat indicators uh, that they're seeing and, and host conferences. So I think that that sharing of information is key. Uh, it, it just it will help broaden, again, the cyber defense infrastructure for each organization because you're able to better inform your defensive architecture with information that's shared amongst the companies. So when there is a cyber emergency, what are some of the most effective methods or strategies executives can use in their decision making? Certainly. And, and when, when I look back on, on my, my crisis management experience, so I've worked uh, major cyber attacks, extortions, kidnappings, terrorist attacks. And what I've learned from those incidents, the, the key is preparation. And, and what, what makes a good crisis manager is uh, one that has the ability to anticipate, anticipate threats. You're looking at threats that are likely and that have a high impact on an organization. So as a crisis manager, so in, in the FBI, we go to crisis management school in Quantico, uh, Virginia at our FBI Academy. And uh, I went to school in 2006 and I had learned from some of the top crisis managers in, in the FBI at that time. And uh, these are crisis managers that went through numerous critical incidents in the FBI. And what you take from those incidents is you look at what you did right, but you also look what went wrong and you hope to never repeat those areas that, that needed improvement. So in learning from them, uh, you're able to formulate your own crisis management strategy. And when I look at a crisis, so any crisis, so a cyber emergency, for example, which is a breach, you're looking at three, maybe four phases. So if you start out with the uh, the first phase, it's really preparation. Preparation is before that attack occurs. So adequate preparation is key to surviving uh, these types of uh, cyber emergencies. Then the three stages of the attack would be that immediate phase, a deliberate phase where you have time to breathe a little bit and make maybe more informed decisions, and then recovery. So if you picture the attack occurs and then you have an ensuing chaos, so you have this up arrow of chaos that's occurring in your organization. So this could be ransomware spreading through your network. It could be a fraudulent financial wire transfer with a million dollars going out the window. So you have this immediate phase and it's so important in the preparation to develop a plan, critical incident plan for each of these threats that could affect your organization. So in the immediate phase, um, and I like to compare this to uh, when you look at other professions. So say uh, an emergency room physician, for example, they have a checklist of items because it's very often down to minutes, sometimes seconds, where they need to make some critical decisions. There's not a lot of time for creative thinking during this phase. So very often surgeons will have checklists that they'll run through. Same thing with pilots too as well. When there's an aircraft emergency, the pilots will go to a checklist. Again, not a lot of time for creative thinking. And 
key decisions early on will affect the outcome. So that immediate phase is key. And what I've learned in crisis management, the key to that critical incident plan, and very often these plans are 100 pages or so in in length. No one's read them. They're generally not exercised. And to try to digest a 100-page plan during an emergency is is not uh, effective. And then during a critical incident, you're going to find, especially as a leader, that you're going to be drinking from an information fire hose. And much of that information in the initial phases of a critical incident are going to be unvetted. And, and quite frankly, that information is going to be incomplete too. So it's difficult to make those decisions. So falling back on an immediate checklist, so say for ransomware, say for business email compromise or insider threat, you have a somewhat of a script to follow because again, you don't have a lot of time for creative thinking. The other thing that this immediate checklist will do very often when an incident occurs, your C-suite is going to be in different locations. So this gives you the ability to work through a critical incident and be on the same sheet of music. So as we move from the immediate phase to the deliberate phase, this is where the bleeding is stopped. Your immediate actions have righted the chaos. You're able to fall back into some more deliberate decisions. Again, these should be deliberate, premeditated decisions or options that you want to have. So during a ransomware, you have time to breathe. You're going to look to your deliberate decision-making checklist of the options you have, and then cover any items that you might have forgotten through the immediate phase. So hopefully deliberate decision-making gets you through this crisis, and then you have that recovery. And the more important thing with recovery is to conduct a successful after-action. And when you have these after-action conferences, and I've been through these with the FBI, it's not always about what you did right. Again, it's about what can we approve on and how can we ensure that this does not happen again? Uh, So those after-actions are are so important and everybody's gonna be exhausted from dealing with the critical incident, but it's important to schedule these at least a week after the incident while the crisis is still fresh on everyone's mind. What can pharma CSOs and CISOs do to decrease their chances of experiencing a cyber breach? Is there anything they can look out for? Yes. Conducting an adequate threat assessment, and and you should be doing this uh, at least once a year, maybe every six months, you should be looking at Maybe the top five threats, again, we're looking at likelihood, we're looking at impact, looking at those five threats and then developing an incident action plan annex for each of those. So when you develop that plan, it could be threat specific, but also another thing to consider is location specific too as well. If you have a data center, for example, that's located in a certain area, do you have an adequate fallback center? Is there a parallel data center? If, for example, the prime data center gets hit with a hurricane or a natural disaster or a fire. So location-specific is key. And when I mention backups, that, that's actually a common aspect uh, or weakness that we see with companies, especially the companies that experience ransomware attacks. The companies that survive ransomware attacks and end up not paying ransoms are the companies that have adequate backups. And not only adequate backups, 
but they've also tested the restoration of those backups. And as you remember, when I first started talking about ransomware, ransomware will seek to encrypt backups that are online. So you ideally want to have offline backups and historic backups that you can go back to. Uh, so that would be one thing. Another, uh, as, as you scan the horizon for threats, other high-risk areas we see uh, would be mergers and acquisitions. So uh, whether you're uh, merging with another company or acquiring a company, you're trying to get two systems to work together, right? Management, you're also trying to get cyber infrastructure and networks working together. There's times where cyber defense postures will be relaxed during that time frame. So these can be very high risk areas, excellent opportunity for adversaries to get into networks, especially if there's any confusion uh, as to responsibilities or any, uh, for example, a firewall, maybe there are doors open within the firewall to allow networks to communicate. Uh, again, this is a highly vulnerable area. So something to think about. Another thing that we see uh, are the research and development networks that sometimes are uh, maybe we'll say less mature in their cyber defensive architecture. And the reason for this, uh, researchers are working on new emerging technologies and sometimes the applications uh, that they will utilize uh, within these networks. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, synthetic biology, I'm thinking uh, genetic engineering. Some of these applications uh, might not be vetted or have uh, an exhaustive code analysis conducted on them where there might be vulnerabilities. And these applications might not be patched as often as, as you would think. Also, there could be legacy uh, devices that sit within these networks that could be potentially vulnerable. So these research and development networks uh, very often are going to uh, hold very important data on your research and development or your clinical trials. So these need to be protected, um, essentially, and, and cyber security infrastructure really needs to surround uh, these, these networks. Another thing, uh, we talked about supply chain uh, once again, I think conducting adequate business risk intelligence investigations on your supply chain. Have they been hacked before? Who is their CISO? Conducting assessments on their architecture prior to allowing that architecture to connect with your networks. We've seen multiple attacks over the years, and, and these would be large IT firms uh, that, that have been attacked. And uh, you really uh, need to consider that if this can happen to them, it can certainly happen to you. And then finally, once again, with the insider threat, I think a lot needs to be paid attention to how the insider threat, what red flags might exist within your organization that would indicate perhaps an, a grievance uh, with an employee uh, that would allow them to progress on a continuum to ultimately steal intellectual property. Because when you think of, uh, about that, this is the insider is, is a human, the hacker is a human. So there's behavior um, and there's behavior that they will, uh, if you think about every day, what, what, what are your uh, normal traditional, like when you log into your systems, you, you have almost this routine, right? So once you go outside of that routine, and if an employee is going outside of that routine, is that suspicious? So we're looking for red flags that would give an indication that someone is on that trajectory. So as I mentioned, it always starts with that grievance, and then that individual gets the idea or something we call ideation. Uh, they develop uh, an idea that they've been wronged in some way 
and this intellectual property they're working on, they're not getting recognized, or maybe there's financial motivations uh, behind this uh, that maybe they're going through, they have marital problems, they're going through a divorce, maybe there's some type of financial consideration that would motivate them to steal intellectual property and then maybe move to another company, for example. Then we see research and planning. So when uh, someone just doesn't think, wake up one day and say they're going to become an insider threat. So there's some research and planning that will go into this and uh, checking the systems, looking for areas where a breach could occur. Would a unknown thumb drive from the outside, for example, be allowed into the network of their company? Or would they uh, allow a Dropbox account in a browser where an individual can exfiltrate data and, and send it to that Dropbox or Pastebin, for example. Then finally, you have the breach. And then uh, any attacker, we see this exterior attackers, we see this with insider threats, attempt to cover their tracks. And, and where we come in from the forensic side, after the fact, there are certainly artifacts that we can identify in digital forensics to give uh, attribution to an account or a user. Also, Windows, for example, uh, when you open a file or delete a file, it's it's a quite a loud process, we call it, in forensics, where there are, will be our digital artifacts in various locations that we can identify to determine what actually transpired. So the, the key in, in digital forensics is, is you know, putting the, the pieces together after the fact, developing a timeline and identifying uh, what had happened and an attribution. So uh, again, that's, that's the insider threat spectrum uh, that we look at. That's where digital forensics comes in. I think we uh, at Nardello, we also have cyber defense. So there's that uh, proactive approach where you're looking to prevent this from happening in the first place. Uh, so that's key. Prevention is key. You know, looking at areas where you could leverage technology to identify these initial insider threat uh, activities. You're looking for changes in user behavior. Uh, so CISOs can really leverage a lot of those technical resources to identify uh, these activities ahead of time. Well, thanks so much for being with me today, Scott. It's been really insightful learning about, you know, how pharma can protect its digital information because this is something that's only going to become, you know, more important over time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? audience-fed creative, and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truestherumntwk.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from Pharma Execs. Hi, I'm Scott Naraki, Managing Director of Digital Investigations and Cyber Defense at Nardello & Company. And my leadership tip is to anticipate top threats that could cripple your organization. Prioritize the top five threats and vulnerabilities. Develop an incident response checklist that addresses each of those threats. And then finally, exercise that plan. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's FarmExec podcast. 
We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the FarmExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com. 